today we wrap up our series on the book of Lamentations. And take your Bibles and make sure you're at Lamentations 5. I did notice something. When you um, talked about, I mean, when, you, when we gave you opportunity to greet one another, you spoke. There was a loud din in this auditorium. When Andrew and I preach, you sit there. Just think about that. Think about that. Before we get into Lamentations, i to tell you a story. I, I told this story five years ago. This is the anniversary of... Uh, <laughs> sort of a, a, an, an, an interesting moment in my life. As I, some of you have said, I, I've, I went, in 2016, I went to the Learn to Row program at the Carnegie Lake Rowing Association. I never really learned to row, but they, I paid the fee and they let me keep rowing. 2017, got back out on the water after three months of rowing indoors. I was in a boat, it was pretty dark, it was about 5.30 in the morning. We go out under the, out, you know, at the Princeton Boathouse there, Princeton University Boathouse, out through the stone bridge where Washington Road goes across, and our boat hit the bridge at 5.30 in the morning. Coach went over and looked at it. The flashlight said, it looks good to us. So we rode all the way out to Kingston, turned around, and we raced back with about five, six other boats, raced back from Kingston. And about 150 meters before we got back to the stone bridge, the bridge that we hit, uh, I was in seat three, and I heard the guy in, 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 in the one seat yelling. I, what I thought he was yelling is, you're stinking, you're stink." I thought he was talking about my rowing. He was saying, we're sinking, we're sinking. And all of a sudden, a wall of water comes under my seat, and I realized we are taking on water. Now this was not part of the learn to row training that I remembered. What do you do? Water fills up, we start to sink, and then it took me a while to realize my feet are strapped into the boat, I'm sinking with the boat. Now you have to realize this is early April. It's about 40 degrees outside. I've got sweats, I've got uh, layers of clothing, and so I finally get my feet unstrapped, so I'm not going to go down with the boat. But now I am treading water in very cold water. And I honestly thought, this is how it ends. I'm going to drown in six feet of water in Carnegie Lake. Well, the coaches got their launches together. They started to pull us up out of the water. I was freezing to death. I could feel my body shutting down. I felt bad for the coach. It was, I felt like they had to harpoon me, like a, you know, you know, and then pull me over the side. And we got all, the, all of us, all nine of us in the boat. I got back in the launch. We were being taken back to the boathouse. And one of the guys looks at me and says, you know, you're a pastor, I said, yeah, and they knew I was a pastor. I said, this would have been a good opportunity to baptize us. <laughs> I, my response was, I was thinking about giving us all last rites, not baptism, but it's okay. But we sank, 
And I'm still a little bit scarred over that uh, on the water rowing starts today, this afternoon. And when we go under that Washington Bridge, I'm always happy we didn't hit it. And in some ways, I think that story is a picture, I think, of our lives. Whether you like it or not, we all take on water. We all crash with our sin and our rebellion. It's also a, a pretty good picture of what our world is like, what our country is like, what the state of the church is like. A boat that is damaged, desperately in need of salvation, of rescue, which I think reminds us of what we have been talking about in the book of Lamentations for the past several weeks. When you get to Lamentations 5, it's interesting, there's no more alliteration in, in some sense, right? All the other chapters, all the other poems in Lamentations 1 through 4, they're alliterated in, in the sense that the, every line of the poem begins with the next consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet, but not Lamentations 5. It's interesting, in this particular poem in Lamentations 5, it, it, it has the feel that, 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 that the writer is writing a, a, a little bit after the destruction of Jerusalem, when he talks about in verse 18, from Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. In other words, we're dealing with the aftermath of the invasion, the aftermath of the temple being destroyed, and the aftermath of people being deported into captivity. And what this poet does for us is ties together, I think, a lot of the themes we've been looking at week after week together. It's interesting that the, it's a first-person plural in, in terms of the, the, the writer of the poem. It, it has a real sense that this was a poem that the entire nation would, would, and the entire group of God's people would recite together. A number of commentators have mentioned that it's almost as if this would have been one of the poems that they might have gone to where the temple once stood and together recited this lament in Lamentations 5. What I would like us to see in this last poem, and then I would like us to apply some of the lessons of that as we have a, a, a more of our worship at the end of, of the sermon this morning, is I want us to embrace three realities that we see in Lamentations 5. We need to embrace these three realities. So let's look at the first embrace. The first is this. We need to embrace our need to confess our sin more deeply. Notice what the writer says here in verse 7. He says, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. There's a sense in which the, the, the poet understands that the sin that, that, that God's people are being dealt with wasn't just the sin of the people themselves. This started long before them with their fathers who rebelled, dismissed God, failed to follow God's word. 
You see in verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. There's, there's, there's an acknowledgement of the effect of the, God's people's rebellion. Their joy is gone. Their dancing has been turned to mourning because of their rebellion. There's a sense in which all throughout Lamentations that sin and its destructiveness are clearly portrayed. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us for we have sinned. This is a corporate acknowledgement of God's people standing in the ruins of Jerusalem, the ruins of the temple, acknowledging Woe to us, we have sinned. It's a full-throated acknowledgement. It's an embracing of their need to confess before a holy God. In verse 17, for this our heart has become sick. For those things our eyes have grown dim. Again, another statement of the effects of God's people and their sin. And I think probably for all of us, in this, if we're honest in this room, our need to embrace confession in a deeper way is probably what all of us need to think about and practice. I think it's very easy for us to, to, to sort of downgrade our sin or to minimize it, to rationalize it away. Lamentations won't let us do that. It's a full-throated embracing of our need to confess our sin. What's interesting about this idea is I think if we're honest and if we read, you know, sort of the research, our world looks at us the church at large, not just Stone Hill, but the church at large, looks at us and does not see a people that in humility is confessing our shortcomings the way we ought to. So, a recent poll. They asked Christians, believers, to describe other Christians. And Christians thought of themselves as very likely to be giving, very likely to be compassionate, very likely to be loving and respectful. And we think well of ourselves. They ask a whole bunch of unbelievers, when you think of a Christian, what do you think? And the answers we got were hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous. Non-Christians are also far more likely to say that Christians do not represent the teachings of Jesus. Now, that may be not true for every single aspect of us, but I think we have all have a tendency not to embrace our need of confession of our sin as deeply as we ought to. A couple of weeks ago, um, Tish Warren, she writes in the New York Times. He's uh, an Anglican priest, right? She's a great writer. Um, she wrote on this in, in conjunction with Lent in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago. And here's what she said. Every week now in church, I kneel with my congregation and admit in the words of the Anglican liturgy that I have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. But what I have done and by what I have left undone, that I have not loved God with my whole heart and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. 
With my whole community around me, week in and week out, I admit that I have broken stuff, including other people and myself, with my human propensity to mess things up and to sin against God and others. She talks about the transformative power of doing what we just read, uh, what, what Amy just read with the Apostle Paul, who said, I, I'm the worst of sinners, right? That's what Paul said. I don't think that was hyperbole. I think that's what he thought. He persecuted Christians. He was self-righteous. He thought he was righteous, but he, he, God revealed to him he was not. And she mentions that one of the prayers that is often repeated is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what our choir song. You repeat it over and over again. And, and, and what she says is, I noticed how strange and transformative it is to, to repeatedly identify myself as a sinner. In other words, I, I, I shouldn't be identifying myself primarily as a mother, a writer, a woman, or a leader in my church, or, or a Democrat, or a Republican, there's a liberating part for identifying myself as not an upstanding citizen, not right, or reasonable, or talented, or on the right side of history. Instead, again and again, to identify myself as a sinner in need of grace. One more thing she does, which is so powerful for, and very convicting as a pastor. She says, when I pray these kinds of prayers, this recognizes that I will get much wrong. That as a writer, I will say things, however unintentionally, that are untrue and unhelpful. This is her own confession. As a mother, I will harm my children, the people I love and want to do right by most in the world. And it tells me that I will harm them in real ways, not just dismissible, well, you know, oh, we all make mistakes kind of ways. As a leader in my church, I will lead people astray sometimes. I will not live up to what I proclaim. I will fail. I will hurt people, not just in theory or abstraction. I will cause true harm. And this humbles me. Part of what Lamentations is trying to get us to do as God's people, both corporately and individually, is to embrace our need to confess our sins more deeply. You can imagine what this would do for us. One of the things that at all the churches I've ever been part of is it's amazing how many people will come to me and say, I feel like I'm the only one in the church that just is struggling. To which I try to say, really? Yeah, everybody looks like they have it together. And some of you do look like you have it together. Some of you make an effort to look good on Sunday morning. And of course, I really can't, because of confidentiality, I can't really tell the person, well, let me give you 15 people that you think have it together who don't. I'd like to. What would it look like for us if when people came to this church, believers in Jesus Christ, 
that one of the ways we identify ourselves is people in desperate need of mercy and we weren't afraid to say it and to confess it and to acknowledge it. And what would it look like in our community at large, outside the walls of this church, is that we individually and we corporately, we of all people, were the ones who were first to ask for forgiveness when we made a mistake, not the last. What would it mean in our homes if, if mom and dad, instead of insisting on their sort of parental authority and rights, were quick to ask forgiveness and show what the gospel looks like to their kids? I think it would make a lot of difference for us and for the world to see the humility of God's people in action, embracing our need to confess our sin more deeply. That's the first embrace. There's a second embrace, and that is we need to embrace our sovereign God more consistently. The one piece of theology in the the section that we just read is in verse 19. The writer says, but you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. There's a sense in which the, the writer is acknowledging God's sovereign. He reigns forever. His reign is not just temporal. It's, it's an eternal reign. And your throne, the kingly reign of our sovereign God, endures to all generations. He, he created the world, and he therefore demonstrated he was the king of the universe. But he has, continues to be that king, that sovereign, who is orchestrating all the, the events of the universe together for his glory and our good. His plans cannot be thwarted. And if we really grabbed a hold of that, right, is that when we see our sin, both collectively as a church, but also individually, we recognize that the only hope we have, as the choir sung earlier, the only hope we have is in this sovereign king to deal with our sin and rebellion. And so we go to him. Notice what the the, the poet says. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The people of God are in complete disarray. And where do they go? They say, God, you, the sovereign one, look at us. See our disgrace. See the condition that we're in. Why Why is that so? Because the writer knows that only a sovereign God who is in control of everything has the power to redeem God's people in this mess they find themselves in. Of course, the poet goes on to say, verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. One of the things we have to embrace more consistently is that God is the only one who can actually deal with our greatest problem, which is sin. 
I know I, I, I forget about this, right? I, I'm think, I think you do too, probably. I think there's probably a number of you in the room today. You, you think your biggest problem is something that's going on in your career or work. I'm no, I don't want to diminish it. It may be very serious. It's not your biggest problem. I know some of you are worried about your children. You've got adult children who aren't walking with the Lord. Or you're, you're trying to figure out how to parent. I'm not trying to minimize that issue for you. But your greatest issue is learning to embrace the sovereign God more consistently. It's not your spouse that is your biggest problem. It's not your economic situation that's your biggest problem. It's not what, what college you're going to get into, and although that may be significant, and you, you should be praying about all of that. The biggest issue for us is making sure, by God's grace, receiving his mercy, to continue to grow in our relationship with God because that is the place and the person where your hopes can only be realized in him plus nothing. And so when we find ourselves struggling with our sin or struggling with a set of circumstances that may not necessarily be our sin so much, but the effects of sin in other people raining down on us, where do you go to deal with that? And we do all kinds of things, do we not? We watch TV, we eat. I've tried that, it doesn't work. We fritter away our time. We, we try to solve the problem ourselves. We go to every other possible place but God himself. And part of what we see in Lamentations is that real suffering drives us to pray. This is a, a prayer of lament in, in, in poet, uh, poem number five here. It's often suffering. It's often, this is what God has to do. And, and it's not pleasant. It's not fun. I wish it was another way. But often what God has to do and what he's done with the people of Israel, he's taken everything they trusted in and he's blown it all up to bring the people of God back to himself. The temple's gone. Their privileged uh, place as a nation is gone. Jerusalem, the capital city, is gone. They're now in captivity. All of the things that they, the, the, the people of God trusted in. They trusted in their position as being the elect nation of God. They trusted in that. They trusted that because God indwelt this physical structure, the temple, that they would be okay. They had prophets who said, don't worry. God will never allow uh, Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed. And all of those things were taken away in order to drive God's people back to embrace this sovereign God who is king of the universe because only a sovereign king can deal with the problems that we have brought on ourselves because of our rebellion and disobedience. That's the second embrace. And there's a third embrace. To embrace the mercy of God in Christ. It's interesting in the book of Lamentations Two of the last three verses are not the most hopeful verses you'll ever read in the Bible. Verse 20 says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? 
Then we have a little bit of hope. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored, verse 21. Renew our days as of old. And then here, here's the concluding verse. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. May God encourage your hearts. Why is that? I think what's going on in Lamentations, I think, you know, is, it, it, it provides answers for us, but some of the, the answers seem to be left for a different time. Some of what I think Lamentations is, is that, yes, the people are supposed to pray, and they're supposed to confess their sin, and they're supposed to, 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 to receive the mercy of God and learn how to pray in the midst of their suffering. All of that is true. But I think the reason verses 20 and 22 at the end seem to leave you with a question. Is God going to forget them forever? Is God going to continue to forsake them? Has he utterly rejected his people? Will you remain exceedingly angry with us forever? It's because I think Lamentations points forward to Jesus Christ where the mercy of God is most clearly portrayed in God's, in Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. Let me just very briefly turn back to Lamentations 2, verse 7. In this second poem, the... the the poet is talking about the fact that the temple of God has been destroyed, essentially. The Lord has scorned his altar. He has disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. Talking about the Babylonians coming in and taking the temple out. Lamentations 2.15. This was... The reaction of God's people in their decimation. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? There's this mocking that goes on with God's people. I want you to turn to Mark 15. Get to the New Testament to see what could be very well an allusion to lamentations, rites concerning the death of Christ. I'm grateful for Barry Webb who wrote a great book called Five Festal Garments, Christian Reflections on the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. It's a great book. It's a little commentary. Here's what he pointed out. In verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, speaking of deriding Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, aha. It's some of the same words, right? As where God's people are reviled in lamentations as the Babylonians destroyed it. It's very similar language. Now you say, well, okay, so there's similar language. They mocked, you know, the people of God, they mocked Jesus. But then notice what they mocked Jesus about. Aha. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priest mocked him, said to one another, He saved others, he cannot save himself. 
let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What was the hope for God's people at the end of Lamentations? Well, this is the hope. That Jesus would come and he would be mocked, just like they were mocked, but Jesus would be mocked, but he's the one who said, I, you know, this, this temple will be destroyed in three days and then I will, I will build it back up. He's not talking about the actual temple. He's talking about him, the temple. His body, the temple. What Jesus is saying is the hope for God's people in Lamentations is the same hope for us today. I am that temple that will be destroyed and I will raise it up to new life and I will be the answer to give you mercy and grace to save you not only from this predicament but from the ultimate predicament that you are trapped and enslaved by your sin. And so we must embrace this Jesus the mercy of God in Christ. And you see these three things all work together. If you embrace your sin you know, more seriously, if you embrace your sin and the need for confession of sin more deeply, but that's all you do, you will be depressed. And you won't have enough time in the day to do it. If you, if you embrace your, you know, the confession of sin and you see that God is sovereign, that is very helpful, right? It connects you back to God. He has the power to deal with you and his people. But unless you get to Jesus, the one who said, this temple will be destroyed and I will build it back up. I'm the temple. In some sense, I will replace this temple that was the worship of God. And in my own body, I will provide a way for you to come into the Holy of Holies. And see a holy God and you won't perish. Because I'd, you stand in my righteousness and my holiness. And unless you let your confession drive you to the sovereign God over the universe. But drives you to the mercy of Christ. The mercy of God in Christ. You'll never be able to be the person. And we will never be able to be the church we ought to be for the world. Unless we embrace all three of these together. And so I want us to do that before we go. So please bow in prayer. I'm going to lead us in a time of confession. Jesus, we come before you now and we acknowledge that all of us have sin and rebellion in our hearts. All of us have sin and rebellion that we, we acted out in this week, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions. And Lord, we ask for your mercy to deal with the things that we did that dishonored you. Forgive us for the things that we didn't do that you were calling us to do and we said no to. I pray that you would forgive us for our selfishness, which keeps us from reaching out to others. I pray that you would forgive us for our, our lack of humility in confessing our sin, for trying to act like everything's fine when it's not. 
for failing to share our struggles with other believers. Forgive us, Lord, for our pride. Lord, forgive us for the way we judge other people. Oh, Lord, we do this. We make mental evaluations of others based on so many superficial things, Lord. But forgive us for that. And forgive us for not encouraging others. I pray, Lord, that you would help us by your mercy to not let our sin sort of paralyze us or not let our sin uh, drive us away from you, but because you are the sovereign God and you are the sovereign God of mercy in Jesus, may our contemplation of our failures cause us to grow in humility, grow in, in integrity with one another and with you and drive us to receive again the mercy of God that only you can provide. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That when we as your people collectively and individually confess our sin and we know you as our Savior, you provide the family forgiveness that we need in Jesus Christ. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.